you to stand for the reading of his word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And Father, again, as we begin to look at this letter of Paul's to the Philippian church, I pray that you would remind us that you're writing to us too. Help us, Father God, to learn the lessons of these verses this morning. Let your spirit speak. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. If you do have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn to the first chapter of the book of Philippians. And uh, I'd like to give you a... Uh, Suggestion to help you navigate the scriptures that was taught to me by a good friend recently. General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Put that together, you can find your way through those little bitty books. I appreciate learning that. <coughs> the Apostle Paul's letter to the church he established along with Timothy, Silas, and Luke at Philippi is a letter of gratitude and encouragement. Paul couldn't find fault with this church. He wasn't down on this church. He wasn't tearing this church up. This church had been with him through thick and thin. And so Paul was thanking them for that. It's a letter of encouragement and gratitude to a body of believers who had remained sure and steady friends in the cause of Christ from their beginning. This letter of Paul's was written while he was in prison. And that's interesting for us. He wasn't in prison for wrong. He was in prison for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might not be able to tell, however, that he was in jail at the time or locked up and behind bars because the overtone of the entire letter is one of joy. You know, I looked up pictures to try to put something up to kind of give us a sense of a prison cell. And I kept on coming up against pictures of guys holding bars, looking out, and kind of dejected. Well, that wasn't Paul. Paul had him a table there, and he would write. In fact, many of these letters, Ephesians and Philippians being two of them, he wrote from jail, from prison. He wasn't downtrodden or beat down or upset or sad. 
He had on his mind the proclamation of the gospel, whether he was in the jail or outside of the jail. It was all about Jesus. He didn't change. Over and over, he declares his joy as he reflects on the relationship that he has both with the Lord and with this specific church. Guys, I want to stress to you because so many people won't. Joy is not the theme of this letter. Joy is not the theme. He's not trying to teach these people how to be joyful. Paul commanded them in one place, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice, but there he wasn't teaching them. He was telling them, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Joy isn't the theme of this letter, but the overflowing attitude of the one that's writing it. And so I, I want to bring out a point to you to begin with that joy overflows from lives that are centered on Christ. And you can write that down. It's in the back of your bulletin. You can find it there. Joy overflows from the lives of those whose lives are centered on Christ. Since the joy of the Lord is the overtone of the letter, I thought maybe we'll talk about it just for a minute before I move on to the point. Since joy is the overtone of the letter, how do we come to joy? How do you and I get to a place of satisfaction, of happiness, of joy, of contentment? Everybody is searching for happiness in life. I talk to people on the dock, man, if I could just hit that million dollar lotto, I'm done, I'm out, I'm going to be happy. No, you're not. Your family is going to be hounding you until all that money is gone. You're going to spend it all away. You're not going to be happy. Man, I can't wait till retirement. And then you find out you got cancer. The day after you retire, you're sicker than a dog and you can't enjoy any of that. Everybody's searching for happiness. But how do we get to the place where happiness is no longer dependent on what we're going through? To the place where joy is the overtone of our life. Look at Paul. He's in prison and he's joyful. You and I are free. And some of us aren't joyful. Consider that Paul and Timothy here were bond servants of the Lord. They were, first of all, slaves. Bond servant means slave. They were doulos. They were bond servants. They were voluntary slaves of Jesus Christ, bought with a price, the price of the precious blood of Jesus. And so they were bond servants of Christ. They were constantly on the road. You and I got a home. They didn't have one, at least not one that they visited very often. They were constantly serving other people. They were usually in the middle of controversy wherever the Lord led them. And they were voluntary slaves of the Lord. They had become such servants out of gratitude for having received of the saving grace of Jesus. And they swore loyalty to Jesus, to the one who saved them. And their lives were his to command, excuse me, as he wished. Their minds and hearts were Christ-centered. And that's the only reason why they could have had the kind of joy that overflowed from the pen of Paul from the other side of prison bars. Some of y'all received a book on Father's Day called How God Makes Men, and we're going to study that as men as we begin our August Bible study. So I hope if you have a copy, you'll read it, and if you don't have a copy and you'd like to participate, let me know and I'll get you one. In that book... <clears throat> One of the chapters deals with King Solomon and a very controversial 
book called Ecclesiastes. It's controversial because most of us, when we read it, we're scratching our heads. Why is it there and what does it mean? Ecclesiastes is one of the most downer books that you can read in Scripture. It, is, it will suck the joy right out of you. He starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything's meaningless. Whew. Man, you just kind of don't even want to read anymore from Ecclesiastes. You just want to skip on the Song of Solomon and get somewhere happy. You don't want to stay there. But that book, the overtone of that book is anything but joy. He says, the words of the preacher, Ecclesiastes 1, well, 1 through 4, the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. And he's basically saying, hey, you know what? I'm working my tail off to have all these things. When I die, it's going to be somebody else's. It ain't going to be mine. You can't take it with you. Naked we came into this world and naked we, we will leave. Everything, Solomon said, is meaningless. But not without testing everything out. You see, Solomon was a man of means. He had the ability to test everything. And so he did. He was the wisest and the richest man at that time who had ever lived. God had given him both wisdom and wealth to rival all others in Second. Chronicles 1, 11 through 12, because Solomon asked for the wisdom to lead the people. And God, since you, he said, since you didn't ask for wealth and you didn't ask for wisdom, or you didn't ask for wealth and health, I'm going to give you wealth and wisdom, wealth that surpasses all others. I have to say that Solomon's search for meaning was more a search for fulfillment and happiness and he did try everything. In Ecclesiastes 2, 4 through 6, it says, I made my work great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. And he couldn't find happiness there. And it says in 1 Kings eleven three, and he had he tried to find happiness in sex. He tried to find happiness in women. This dude had 700 wives and 300 concubines. We can't manage, many of us can't seem to manage one household that is polygamous. I'm sorry, polygamous, shoot me, monogamous. We can't manage one husband and wife relationship. This guy had 700 wives and 300 concubines and there's no wonder he wasn't happy. And you know what the most important thing about that situation is? Those 700 wives and 300 concubines that he sought happiness from led him away from the worship of the true God to worshiping their gods. And ultimately led to Israel's being torn in two. Torn in half. But after an extensive examination of all the things Solomon concluded, one thing, that living life without God could never produce happiness, joy, or meaning. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, he wrote, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man all. This is man's all. Unlike Solomon, Paul found his commitment 
contentment in life. In Philippians 4, 10 through 13, he says, I learned, and we'll talk about that as we study this book, but in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, he talks about he had learned in all things to be content. He could be content with much, and he could be content with little. little. How could he do that? It was because of Christ who strengthened him that he could do that because his focus wasn't on circumstances and it wasn't on people and it wasn't on material things. It was on Jesus. Paul didn't go out like so many of us in search of joy and happiness today. Paul sought as a bondservant to live for the Lord and as he did, joy found him. I want you to think about that for a minute. Paul set out to serve Jesus, and in the process, joy found him. Joy filled his heart in the prison cell. The lesson we need to learn here is that joy is a byproduct not of our circumstances, but of our occupation with serving the Lord. So we talk about this joy overflows from the life of a person who's centered, whose life is centered on Christ. There's a second thing I want to drive today. It's that God is committed to those who are committed to Him. Now that might not sound all that great, but you'll see it in a minute. God is committed to them whose lives are committed to Him. See, now Paul, when he writes in his introduction, he writes to the elders and to the bishops. He writes to the entire congregation, to the saints that are in Philippi, to everyone there. The church at Philippi was situated in a colony of the Roman Empire. And as such, they enjoyed a great deal of benefits, the benefits of Rome. One of those being not to have to pay taxes. Isn't that cool? I wouldn't mind living in a city like that if I didn't have to. Anyways. It was Rome away from Rome for the citizens of Philippi. And they enjoyed, <clears throat> excuse me, and they enjoyed, enjoyed all the comforts of the empire. But the church had an interesting beginning, and I won't go into detail, but in much detail. Acts 16 gives us the overview of it from his meeting of Timothy and his impression of Timothy. Timothy was a disciple called so in verses 1 through 5 of Acts 16, and he was so impressed with Timothy that he thought to take him with him on the journey. And so he did. And so he circumcised them. He circumcised them because they were going to reach the Jews and he wanted to make sure that they would listen. And they weren't going to listen to somebody who wasn't actually coming at them and respecting what they believed, their culture. So Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he wanted to go to Asia. And the Holy Spirit basically said, go west, young man. And so eventually he found himself in a place called Troas. And that's where he received this Macedonian call, this vision of a man in Macedonia crying that he would come there and help. And so from that point, Paul set sail with who became, because there is a pronoun in there that changes things. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts, and what we notice there, it, it moves from a they to a we, implying that Luke is traveling with Paul and Silas and Timothy now to Philippi. When they get there, and I'm going to try to condense this, there's two people, two factions, two groups that we need to write. I don't know if I can shrink it up. When he got there, he spent a little bit of time in the city. 
And then while, while waiting, he learned where it was customary for them to pray. They prayed on a riverside, on a riverbank. And so he went out to this place that was customary, and he was going to, and he ended up meeting a bunch of women there. You see, uh, <coughs> the way it works, there has to be 10 believing Jews in a town, 10 believing males, in order for there to be a synagogue in a place. And what that basically says is there weren't 10 believing Jews in the entire city of Philippi, but these women were there meeting and praying to the Lord. And he met a woman there named Lydia, and she was a worshiper of God. She was looking to discover the truth about God, and she overheard Paul talking to the other women, and she believed. And Paul ended up baptizing her and her whole household. He stayed with her for a while. Then he encountered this a woman, this, uh, this slave girl who was possessed with a demon of divination. And she was making her master a bunch of money. But she was taking Paul off because she kept on saying, these are the ones that will show us the way to the Most High God. And, and Paul was getting irritated. So he just turned around and rebuked the devil, cast him out of her. Well, the trade guild at the time, I'm using that term loosely, got a little aggravated with Paul because it cost this guy so much money. So they had Paul and Silas thrown into jail. And this is where we meet the next part of the body that became the Philippian church. The miracle that ensued at midnight while Paul and Silas were singing when the shackles broke free and the prison guard came running into the place to see if they were still there. He was about to take his own life because honestly, if he'd lost the prisoners, that was the only thing he could do because they were going to kill him anyhow. And Paul said, don't do it. We're all here. And the fact that they were all there made this prison guard, this warden, say, what must I do to be saved? And it gave Paul the opportunity again to share the gospel with a prison warden and his whole family, and they were all baptized too. And so this whole church has begun with Romans and Jews and women and prison guards and businesswomen and, I mean, children. It was a diverse church, like ours, like every church should be. It was diverse. Like our church or any other, the people came from various backgrounds and they became one body. Jesus Christ makes us one body. doesn't matter what your background is, we're one in Jesus Christ. We're one body in Christ. And we're united in Christ. And in partnership they were with Paul. In verses 3 through 5, we read that Paul was grateful to the Lord because of the partnership and participation of the church at Philippi in the good work of advancing the gospel. In verse 6, the apostle continues, being confident this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue it to the day of Jesus Christ. Okay. I think there are two meanings and intentions here. There's the one that's contextual and there's the one we add to it. The contextual application of, excuse me, of this, the good work that Paul was talking about is the good work of supporting him and partnering with him in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the continuing missionary effort of spreading the gospel that Paul was talking about when he said, uh, partly talking about, in my mind, I'm fully talking about, when he said that God will continue this good work. Well, till the day of Jesus Christ, it says. Well, Jesus hasn't come yet, and the Philippian church is long gone. So how in the world is he continuing to work through them? Can you think of a way? You're holding it in your hand. He's continued the work of the church through the Bible. The letter to the Philippians is there for you to read 2,000 years later. 
The words of Paul are there on the page. God is continuing to bring people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel that we read in those pages. And the work continues, and he will continue that good work that he's doing in us until the day of Jesus Christ. But there's another application. This is the one that I commonly have accepted all of my life as the application for verse 6. And it speaks to sanctification. And it speaks to spiritual maturity. That God has begun a good work in you, and he will perform it. He will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know, every time I fall flat on my face and screw up, and pardon me for putting it quite like that, but every time I do, I have to go back to the one thing that I remember. Jesus Christ saved me. I didn't walk to the front because I wanted to. I walked to the front because he moved me to. I accepted Jesus not because I thought, hey, that's a good thing to do today. I moved to the front and accepted Jesus Christ because I believe that's the thing I needed to do. And so I know that God did the work. He started the work, and if he started it, he'll finish it. He promised. And that's a promise to all of us. He promised. He continues his good work of transforming lives, our lives. So this good work that he refers to here is not only a reference to the missionary efforts of believers throughout the ages, but is a reference to their spiritual transformation and sanctification as well. In that sense, we could say that God is committed to transforming and renewing those who by faith in Jesus are committed to him. If you're on the road with Jesus, if you're holding his hand, if you're walking in his direction, if you're side by side with him, if you're open to his leadership, he is committed to lead you in the right direction. Moving from there, I want to get to the point that's going to take up the most time today. And it's the nuts and bolts of this prayer of Paul that we read in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1 of Philippians. You see, I believe that one of the main emphases emphasis of this letter is spiritual maturity. Like I said, Paul didn't have any criticism for these guys. They were doing great. But how many of you know that we can do better? We can all do better, right? I mean, a, a vine that's producing fruit, some guy was going to come along, a, a vine dresser, and he's going to start pruning. Hey, hey, the vine's probably saying to itself, man, those are good branches. They look great. And he cuts it off. But see, no, no further growth comes if you don't cut that off. I was talking to the brother, uh, to Rudy, a few weeks ago, and I was telling him about weightlifting. And I basically said, you know what, if you don't challenge people, it's kind of like not putting any extra weight on the bar and thinking you're going to build up muscle. You have to challenge people to go further. Paul challenged people to go beyond where they had already come. And that's the emphasis that I discover in these verses. He said in verse 9, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul's prayer was fourfold. First, he prayed for the maturing love of believers. We'll talk about it. Then he prayed that believers would practice loving discernment. Discernment is something we all need a lot more of these days. Third, that believers would have a maturing character, a maturing Christ-likeness. And finally, for the resulting fruit of that maturity. In verse 9, Paul prays that the love of the Philippian believers would abound. And actually, the Greek word there means that it would superabound. 
that it would excel. It's another way of saying it would mature. It would go past where it is. Their love of the Lord would mature. A lot of us go through life with sentimental love, don't we? A lot of people come into the church and they have a sentimentality about Jesus Christ, but they don't have a reality about Jesus Christ. They're gushy about Jesus. They're warm and fuzzy about Jesus, but they're not serious about Jesus. We have sentimentality, and many of us go through life with a sentimental love for God and His Son, but our love for Jesus, our faith, and our relationship with Him is not merely to be emotional and sentimental. It's to be grounded, guys, in the intelligent and insightful commitment of the will of God to our hearts and minds. Did you hear that? Our, our love is to be grounded on what? On the Word of God, on the revelation of the Holy Spirit, on His power, on His promises. Not only grounded on it, but committed to performing that truth. Paul's prayer was that believers would abound in their understanding of the love of God towards them as expressed through Jesus and conveyed to their hearts by the Holy Spirit. But continuing in this vein of spiritual maturity, Paul instructs believers to excel and that their love would superabound their actual love, not their sentimental love as they grow both in understanding of what the Lord's will is and isn't. And this would become especially necessary when they encounter false teachers that Paul will talk about in this letter. People that are preaching another gospel. We must grow in love and in the ability to discern what is excellent from what is not. The second, the second part of Paul's prayer comes up that believers would approve the things which are excellent. Not only did Paul want us to be able to discern false doctrine from true. We'll discover that in Philippians 3. But he prayed that believers would approve by testing the things that are excellent. What does that mean? That it means that the word approve means to test. Let me give you some scriptural references to kind of get the gist of it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the first place where we see the same word for approve used. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And then he goes on to say, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. It's the same word as approve. It's the same Greek word, prove. It means to test. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? Prove it. Test it. Discover it. We read in Malachi the same thing. Try me and see. Try me in this and see if I'll not open the doors of heaven and pour out a blessing such as you cannot contain when we just do the very least and tithe. But we have more. In 1 John 4, 1 through 3, we read again, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. You see that? Test the spirits. Same Greek word again. Test it. Prove it. Discover it. Find it out. Discern it. 
Discern what is excellent in order to understand what really matters in life from that which does not. Warren Wearsby suggests two good tests for us to follow as we exercise spiritual discernment. The first test is, what will I do? Oh, I'm sorry. Will what I'd like to do make other people stumble? That's the first test of discernment. Will what I'd like to do make other people stumble? It's a way to evaluate whether something is good or bad. Or The other is, will I be ashamed if Jesus would return while I'm doing what I'd like to do? The third, the third section of this I want to spend a few minutes on, the third section of his petition, is that believers might be sincere and without offense, that they might have a maturing character. Sincere and without offense until the day of Christ refers to the qualities of Christian character. Sincerity, guys, here has to do with integrity. I liked the writer Patrick Morley in the book that I gave you all to study where he said the way he handles integrity is to act as if even though he's, not, he's the only person in the room, Jesus is right there. He's never alone. Jesus is always in the room. He's always present. This word sincerity implies that a sincere person isn't afraid to stand in the light. They're not afraid for their actions to be seen. In other words, he or she is confident that they discerned right from wrong and they acted the right way. Theirs is a character that can pass the test. Then Paul gets to blamelessness. And the blamelessness of Christians is initially and eternally produced not by their good works, but by the inworking of grace through Jesus Christ. We look at verse 7 and 11, we recognize that it's by Jesus Christ that we have this blamelessness. And expressed, our blamelessness is expressed by our love and our lifestyle. Why is it important for us, according to Paul, to be sincere and without offense or pure and blameless if we don't earn our salvation? Listen, we don't earn our salvation, but we do earn the right to be heard by others. We do earn the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. If we lack integrity, or we're, if we're offensive towards others in attitude or action, if we're caustic in our approach to others, we will never earn the right to be hurt. Our actions have already spoken louder than our words could ever speak. Many of us know professing Christians who are like sandpaper, prickly pear cactus, fingernails drug across the blackboard, or a street sign or billboard covered in graffiti. They're abrasive. They're hard to get our arms around. And they're very hard to listen to. And like the billboard that's covered with graffiti, the writing obscures the message that God wants them to hear. Maybe you're such a person. I know I have been. In my mind, this prayer is for people like that. 
Though it would appear that nobody in Philippi was that caustic. It would appear that nobody that Paul was writing to was so abrasive. But I want you to know that the likelihood or the possibility that any of us could become that is as quick as snapping your finger. So it's important to live pure and blameless lives. 1 Corinthians 10.32 reminds us in front of unbelievers and in front of Jews, in front of all people, because we represent the Lord to those around us, and many of them have yet to trust in Jesus. We don't live for ourselves. When we start thinking we do, we mess up. And we lose opportunities. And we let people down. I like really how the New Living Translation puts verse 11. Even though I would recommend that whatever you study, or even if you undertake this study with me, I, every day I'm reading Philippians, all the whole book. And I don't mean reading it like, you know, we sit down and say, well, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, cha- I'm done. I've done that for this today. Done my, every day God's going to, if you spend the time with it, God will give you new insight. If you spend the time with each verse. And I would impress upon you not to spend too much time in one translation. For instance, the New Living might give you one view. The New King James might give you another. You might need to put these two together to try to come to a better understanding of the whole thing. The New Living puts verse 11 like this. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. Now, it really doesn't get much more simpler than that. Jesus is working in us to produce a godly character. It is the fruit of justification. It is the fruit of righteousness. It is that fruit. We get this character. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and gentleness and long-suffering and kindness. And I took it out of order, so I forgot how the rest of it goes. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. That's one fruit. That's not a bunch of fruit. That's one fruit. That's what the Holy Spirit of God produces in us when we yield to the Holy Spirit and yield to Jesus Christ. When we're committed to Him, He begins to build this fruit in our lives. But he produces other fruit as well. For one thing, he produces a harvest of the Lord. Paul wrote about that in Romans 1.13 when he said, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. As he's writing to the Romans, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I planned to come to you, but I was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. Now, he wasn't talking about a fruit salad. Paul wasn't talking about, hey, I want to have a fruit salad with you guys. Come over and hang out. We're going to have salad. It's going to be nice. <laughs> He wanted to have fruit among them. That means he wanted to reach some of them and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. He wanted to have fruit among them. He wanted to testify of the mercy of Jesus Christ so that they might receive what Lydia had received and what the Philippian jailer had received. By the way, I don't know what his name is. The Bible doesn't tell us. But for all the fruit, guys, that can be produced in a person's life. Praise and holiness. Remember, even the fruit of our lips is the glory of God. Hebrews tells us the fruit of our lips are to give thanks to his name. 
praise and holiness, character and good works. None of it can be done without a deep abiding in Jesus who said again in John 15, 5, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If anyone abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. You cannot have joy without Jesus. You can't accomplish anything meaningful in your life without Jesus. You can't accomplish anything for the gospel without Jesus. We can't do anything apart from Christ. And you will never know the fulfillment of a life. You're always going to be one step short of contentment as long as Jesus Christ is either at the back of the bus or not in your life at all. He's got to be up front. He's got to be driving. Now, sometimes we're going to mess up. And sometimes we're going to push him out of the seat. Well, as if, if you could. Sometimes we just sit on his lap and just take over. I don't know what we do. God is committed to those who are committed to him. He will use us to do his will. He will sanctify and transform us. And he will produce a harvest through us if you and I will give ourselves totally into his hands. And this is the gist uh, verses 1 through 11 of Paul's letter here. Give yourself totally into the hands of Jesus. Press on with Christ. Don't be satisfied. Too many Christians are satisfied. I'm saved and I know that I am. I am satisfied with Jesus. He has done so much for me. He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. I am satisfied, we sing. I am satisfied. I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think on Calvary. Is my master satisfied with me? We can never be content with where we are. Paul's pushing us. I'm pushing you. I want you to push me. There's one person here today who already has, and I'm so grateful. Push each other in a direction that leads to growth. The goal of our salvation is to give ourselves totally into Christ's hands and see what he'll do with our life. Will you stand with me, please? Is this your life? Are you given into the hands of Jesus, lock, stock, and barrel? Are you all his? Or are you holding something back? He never called us to be perfect. He does want us to never stop trying to be like Jesus. And we can be that as long as we submit to Him. Are you submitted to Jesus today? As I get quiet, I hope the Spirit who I feel like has been talking would continue to talk in this room to each one of us and to move us where He wants us today. Father in Heaven, as we bow our heads before You today, we acknowledge where we are. We acknowledge who You are. Help us to see, Father, if there's a desire within us to be what you want us to be. And Father, if there isn't, help us to hunger for that. Help us to act on that. Father, you know us better than anybody else. Draw us, lead us, move among us, please. In Jesus' name. While the song plays, the altars are open for you to come and pray. You can pray with me or Larry. You can pray where you're sitting. It doesn't matter. 
Jesus is faithful. God is faithful. He hears you. Seek him while he may be found.